0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir?
1: Hey James, it's so great to talk to you. I know we're supposed to wear masks, but I can't mask how excited I am to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, yeah, man. We're not even 20 seconds into the episode, bro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, like, I can't mask how excited I am to talk. About I wasn't these even
0: This is the this these are the worst jokes the ones that I don't see coming. They got an expression in mixed martial arts where they say the punches that hurt the most are the ones that you don't see coming. Those are the ones that knock you out. (laughs) It's the same with these dad jokes, bro. I'm just like the ones that I don't see coming. Those are the ones that make me cringe the worst.
1: But right, I'm here to I'm here to put the pun in punishment. Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) We're not even a minute in. We're not even a
0: minute in. Bro, Well, Let's... you know
1: how DNC 19 says um, that there's no endless punishment? Well, uh-huh. now we've got endless punishment because um, I'm never going to stop.
0: <laughs> no, you're never going to stop. And yeah. the listeners don't want you yeah. to stop. So this yeah. is my torment. <laughs> this is what? Who's that guy from Greek mythology who had to like roll the stone up the hill? What's his name? Uh, Sisyphus. Sisyphus. That's... Yeah. This is my Sisyphean trial or whatever it is. I don't know yeah. what they call it. But... Yeah, well...
1: I yeah, gladly so bear it, though. Yeah, you have to endure to the end, but there's no end. There is no end. There is no end, like the like the hymn says. What is it? If you could hide
0: a colab, there's it. There's no right. end to virtue. There's no is end, no end space, to, to my no jokes. No end to Derek's jokes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the <laughs> thing is, you laugh. You still laugh. You you suffer, but you still laugh.
0: I still laugh. I mean, I don't know. This is trauma laughter at this point, Derek. It's <laughs> trauma laughter. But anyway. Let us, before we get too off track, let's go ahead and jump into uh, the lesson for today. We're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants, but before we uh, do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so, family in Christ. We are in Doctrine and Covenants, sections 46 through 48. We are, for the sake of continuity, I think I'm going to just start with the background for 46, and then we'll talk about the background for 47 once we get there. But uh, here is the background for 46. This is more or less a response to deception. The Lord will command us in this section to seek the gifts of the Spirit so that we are... Um, not deceived, what appears to have happened was like some missionaries had a bad experience or something in Cleveland where they got attacked during a meeting, and understandably, they wanted to restrict attendance to their meetings to save off that kind of abuse. In fact, mm-hmm. I think at this point, most of the church meetings were restricted to just members, I'm not entirely sure, but at least at this point, they were like, we don't want to suffer this kind of abuse again, so we are. So maybe it would be a better idea if we just prevented people who weren't members from coming into church. They probably deferred to scriptures like Moroni uh, 6, verse 7, which reads, and they were strict to observe that there should be no iniquity among them, and whoso was found to commit iniquity, and three witnesses of the church did condemn them before the elders, and if they repented not and confessed not, their names were blotted out, and they were not numbered among the people of Christ. Close quote. But then we got others, uh, like other people clearly opposed uh, such an idea, and they were specifically quoting Third Nephi chapter 18, and this is... Verse 22, this time, where the Lord says not to forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together. Both positions seem justified, but the saints clearly needed uh, some more light to be able to deal with this situation. And what we got in response to this particular issue, in addition to issues of deception in the church and people manifesting certain spiritual gifts when they may not have actually had them, that's how we got section 46 so we're going to be discussing or rather addressing issues of who is going to be welcome at church what the spiritual gifts are what they look like um and that's more or less what we're going to be getting here so uh derek i know you got some thoughts on at least this first piece uh with regard to who is welcome at these church meetings what you want to say about that
1: yeah so in verse three four and five it's, it's repeated three times, right? So it's gotta be important. We're commanded not to cast anyone out. Dave Butler has suggested that there's more than one way to cast someone out. So most oh, of the time we're thinking okay. about this having a bouncer at the door, restricting who can come in, who, can, who has to stay out. But there's another way. Right. Like If we make the space unwelcoming or unsafe for certain people, that's also a way of effectively casting them out and we see a lot of this second kind of casting out more than the first. So we really need to be aware of how we do that. And there was this infographic that was put on the church newsroom website just a few days ago, and it focused mostly on single folks because now Mm -hmm. we know that in the US, single folks, both um, never married and widowed and divorced, now make up the majority of members. And that needs to be accepted. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like crash theory again. Either you deny the, the situation or you realize, hey, our narrative needs to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I like what it says. Uh, and this is designed, I think, for church leaders. We don't have a lot of training for church leaders, which means when there is something, it's very, very important. So uh-huh. it's talked. it talks about... Uh, focus on single adults who don't fit in. That those who uh, have diverse political and social views, those yeah. who identify as minority, and it actually explicitly puts race and sexual orientation in there. Mm. And that mm. the um, that these populations should be given special attention and special concern. It talks about making sure that people don't feel judged. That there's welcoming that people don't, especially that people don't feel judged for not marrying on time or not serving a mission or any mm-hmm. of these other things that happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what I noticed is here it says, we should have diverse worship experiences. Did you see this? It says outside the sacrament ordinance, we can adjust that or broaden the Sunday worship experience. That sounds like it's okay to have black church. Dude, I was
0: thinking about that just this week. Um, I don't want to derail this too much, but I was just thinking about how much the church doesn't really know how to conduct lamentation within Mm -hmm. uh, the walls of our church. And I was like, that is kind of something I wish we had, especially in the cases of, uh, you know, black death in this country. Right. Something that I really miss at church is the opportunity and experience for lamentation. And this is something that the black Mm -hmm. church does pretty well, Mm -hmm. is that there actually is space for lament uh if not directly at church there's at least going to be a vigil or a prayer meeting that same day or like later that week whereas in the church we kind of embrace this culture of uh you know toxic positivity and you know talk about what you know the hope of the resurrection and stuff and there's a place for that but sometimes Mm -hmm. in fact a lot of times when stuff like this happens there needs to be space for lament and i wish uh that we could create a space like that for people who want to mourn so i really like this idea of a diversity of worship experiences
1: right we we certainly need that and we would all benefit from everything that we and this gets into the spiritual gifts too there's not just one way like uh-huh. When when we get into the celestial kingdom, we're going to be worshiping God, but it's not going to be anything like nineteenth century Utah. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. it's going to mm-hmm. be way better than that. Um, and it- <laughs> <laughs> no shade, but yeah, you're totally right. Um, but yeah, I think this this could be groundbreaking if leaders implemented it, and this would help mm-hmm. people feel welcome. It would help people prepare their spiritual gifts and invest mm-hmm. in them and develop those gifts. And it, mm-hmm. one of the principles here in in developing solutions is to listen, that's step number one, that people need mm-hmm. to be heard, single folks need to be heard. Um, and not just single folks, but like it says, people who don't fit in for whatever reasons, whether they're introverted or yeah. uh, race or orientation or those who are divorced or widowed. There's just yeah. so many people... That we should center those who are on the margins. I mean, that's that's really all that DNC is about. It's the whole purpose yeah. of the gospel. It is the, dude, yes. So that's all I had to say for this part of section 46. The only thing else I had in section 46 was to talk a lot about spiritual gifts.
0: Okay. Before we get there,
1: um, I, I did have one thing I wanted to say about this.
0: I, I was just thinking about, you know, an experience that I had during the course of my mission. I met uh, I met a family. They were named the Judson family. And, you know, they were really pleasant and receptive upon our first meeting, but I kind of tempered my expectations when I extended the invitation to them to visit, you know, visit church. They were primed for The restored gospel in their lives, but I was still a bit shocked when the whole family, like the whole fam damily, showed up to church and sat front and center. And everybody took notice because of their more casual dress and the smell of tobacco smoke Mm -hmm. on them, you know? And I'm a little ashamed to say that I was a little embarrassed by it because I expected the same judgment of them that I might have expected back in the States. But when I visited with the bishop afterward, he checked me real quick, and he quoted something from Brigham Young that I don't really remember all that well and therefore can't really verify. But he said something Mm -hmm. along the lines of, if you can't smell alcohol and tobacco on anyone at church, then you need to improve your missionary efforts. And I thought that Mm -hmm. was really beautiful, Mm -hmm. just how it was welcoming of anyone who was curious about our faith and seeing truth, regardless of how they looked, what their lifestyle was, how they smelled and whatnot. Like, I should have known better the day that we showed up to the Jetsons' house that, you know, know, the father of the Mm. household, Mm. he told everybody that they were going to hear us out, and he didn't do it in a joking or condescending manner, but a genuine one, and then I was not in a place to be able to receive them as they were when they actually showed up to church and they turned out to be one of our most powerful investigating families. I remember one day I showed up to a member family's house and they were just there randomly, just having a gay old time. It was like mm. one of the coolest things I had ever experienced but I learned a lesson that day about you know how we need to be welcoming people of all kinds of stripes, of all kinds of backgrounds, of all kinds of uh, worshiping styles, of all kinds of you know lifestyles just You know, you talked about it with the diversity of worship and just the diversity of background, people on the margins, just I I was just really happy to see that this infographic seems to be really making an effort to be a tool to help our leaders address these differences that make things difficult for people to be able to worship at church. And I think this isn't I mean, obviously, it's not just single people, but, you know, they want to focus on that because single people are such a big part, I would still Mm -hmm. extend Mm -hmm. this kind of care to people who are different in any way so that we can truly become the diversified and integrated church that we were always intended to be. And I will say, even though we just kind of made fun of the 19th century church, I will say Uh that they at the very least um, knew the kind of position they were in and therefore were significantly more welcoming back then, I think, of different kinds of people than we might be today even though you know we do kind of actually welcome black people in the church now and they didn't really have that at the time of Brigham Young Mm -hmm. but you know they were in a better position in some ways to be able to accept more kinds of people than we might be today.
1: And here's the one important thing is that you need to plan in advance so you don't have to you don't have to decide in the moment because you've already decided what to do like I've already decided that if a visitor comes in and he's not wearing a tie well I'm gonna take off my tie too so he's not the only one not wearing a tie or if someone after a musical number starts clapping because they're coming from a different cultural experience then I'm gonna start clapping too so that they're not the only one (laughs) right I'm gonna that's that's kind of what I've decided, right? Because that is more mm. important. It's kind of, here's the thing about the spirit is the spirit tells you which rules to break. Hey, that is a whole bar. I love and that. And the spirit, like, and the rules of not clapping, that's not even a commandment. That's just a cultural custom. That's a rule you mm-hmm. can break, and that's the rule that the spirit's gonna tell me to break mm. so that I, I'd i rather break a cultural uh, taboo than actually break a person. So um, yes. yeah, put write that down, everyone. The spirit tells you which rules to break <laughs> because so many yes. C- Mormons will will actually focus on these checklists, these outer rules, these external things that in the end are not eternal. Come on now, come on. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I have a lot to say about s- these uh, spiritual gifts. Are we ready for that?
0: Be- be- I am not because I just want to point out oh. that the actual that the scriptures actually confirm what you just said there. Like in the beginning, in the opening verses of the Doctrine and Covenant, section forty-six, it actually tells us that we're supposed to conduct these meetings as directed by the Spirit. And I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that is a critical point in this whole discussion of how we handle this whole situation of who is coming to church, how we deal with people who come to church, and all that other stuff. Because exactly, you know. What we got in the Book of Mormon is great and everything, but clearly we need to make exceptions at some points, and the Spirit is the thing that tells us when to make those exceptions. So I just wanted to make sure that people understood that what is written mm-hmm. here in Doctrine and Covenants 46 actually witnesses to what you just said. Yeah, about the thank Spirit you so much being able to tell you what uh, rules to break now i'm ready
1: yeah so i'm not going to quote this whole section on spiritual gifts but it enumerates many of them it talks about that we should uh we should seek the best gifts it talks a little bit about how we should do all things with prayer and thanksgiving Mm -hmm. uh, and then it talks about the leaders of the church that to some extent they have a connection in some way with all of the gifts and we'll talk a little bit Mm -hmm. later about what that actually means because people might tend to inflate or exaggerate. What the leaders can and do, because leaders can't do everything and they aren't aware mm-hmm. of everything. Mm-hmm. and And we'll talk about that. Uh, what cool. I love about this is that the gifts are distributed. You see this in Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 where he's talking mostly about these charismatic gifts of speaking in tongues and revelation, interpretation of tongues, and all of these um, these things that were causing some problems in the Corinthian community but here's what i want to do i want to go through and talk about this this crater idea that i had a while back crater yeah the crater Crater returns so the thing about crater just to remind people this was born out of my experience where i originally thought back when i was naive that the only thing you had to get right was the content of the scripture as long as it's in there it's fair game for you to say whenever and however you want now that i'm more mature I've realized it's not just about getting the content right. There's other things you have to get right. That's the raider part of the crater. Uh, and so the crater stands for content, rationale. If there is a rationale in the scripture for something, you should know it. The audience, because the scriptures say different things to different people at different times. You have to get the audience right. You also have to get the tone right. There's uh, some. sometimes it's uh, if you say the wrong thing in the wrong tone, you can really distort the meaning here. Like if your Mm. outcry against injustice isn't strong enough, you've also not been faithful to the scripture. Mm. Or if your comfort to the afflicted isn't comforting enough, you also got the scripture wrong. See, there's so Mm. many ways of getting the scripture wrong other than just the content. Then E stands for emphasis. Like, some things in the scriptures are more important than the others. If you really major in these small things, you're not faithful to the scriptures there either. And then the last R is rebuttal, to see if there's any other text that sort of counterbalances it or nuances it or makes an exception or or an amendment or even revokes something else. And so we're going to talk about these rebuttal texts. I think, because some people might say, oh, well, the church leaders are given all gifts and they have all authority. And then we have to actually see how that is nuanced by other texts elsewhere in scripture, and especially 1 Corinthians 13, where it says that if you have all these gifts, if you have prophecy, if you have revelation, if you have all knowledge, if you even sacrifice your body, if you do all these things, but you don't have love, you don't get any credit. It doesn't count. Mm-hmm. It doesn't benefit anything, anyone. Right. So that's kind of where I want to make sure, uh, make sure we 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 say that. And I'm saying this because I want to look at some examples of places where God's appointed leaders didn't know everything that others did, or where they didn't have the wisdom or insight that others did or they didn't have the positionality to understand what others did and the reason i'm saying this is to is to serve as a counterbalance for this um verse 29 of section 46 that unto some it may be given to have all those gifts that there may be a head in order that every member may be profited thereby and i think these you don't have all the gifts unless every member is profited thereby and I think there's there's many cases where we're depriving many of our members of access to the all of the opportunities of the gospel. So that's the whole purpose in in these gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back to some of these examples. And um, I've mentioned a number of these examples here and there, but I thought I'd get a number of them together all in one place, and we're going to talk about them. Okay so here's the example from exodus 18. now jethro moses's father-in-law asks what moses is doing moses says that he is judging cases that people bring to him so jethro tells moses what you're doing is not good it's too much for you the kjv has the thing that thou doest is not good can you believe that jethro said that to a prophet of the lord the thing (laughs) that thou doest is not good That is, uh, you know, at the time I read this text, I
0: did just notice that, oh, this is his Mm father-in-law. And, you know, it seems almost appropriate that he does this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, yeah, this is the prophet, and you are Mm -hmm. telling the prophet that what he's doing is not good. It didn't actually occur to me to read the scripture in this manner.
1: Yeah, so, but but let's look at Moses' reaction. It was full of humility and grace. It wasn't, oh, how mm-hmm. you dare you? I'm a prophet. I've got no. It was, it was actually respectful. So right, right. Uh, Jethro tells Moses that he's going to give Moses some advice. And Jethro's advice is to ge- delegate these responsibilities to others so that he doesn't have to sit and judge these cases all day and get exhausted. And even though Moses was the prophet and Jethro was not, in fact, I don't even think he had any institutional standing. He was a priest of Midian. He wasn't even apparently Jewish. He may have he joined himself to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, he had no official standing. But anyway, Moses hearkened unto him because Jethro had insight that Moses did not, and Moses had the humility to listen and learn. Ain't that nothing. Yeah, that's just one example. Add. I'm gonna have to yeah. go through. Oh, we got more, let's go. We, we've got way too many of these examples, but I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way people can forward this episode all at once to people and say just, here's here's a sort of a an anthology of a lot of these examples. So here yeah, we've got I'm numbers 27. It. I wanna also highlight the example of women. So here we've got the daughters of Zelophehad. And I want to say their names. It's important to say their names. And let's remember the names of these faithful and confident women. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. Oh, I, by the way, if all of you Utah people want to find some weird names for your kids, <laughs> here's five more, okay?
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> jokes. Let's
1: go. Okay. So these five confident women stood in front of Moses and all the leaders and said that their father died in the wilderness with no sons. And Zilafahad's daughters would not have inherited. His name would have been wiped out. His memory would have been wiped out. And so these daughters asked, why should our father's name be left out? Lama Yigara shema vinu. Why should our father's name be held back or left out? Then here's the thing that that people don't notice is they didn't ask, they didn't ask politely, they made a demand. It's an imperative in Hebrew, give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our Father. They said that to the prophet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Moses was humble enough to realize that he didn't know everything or perceive anything mm-hmm. um, that uh, he didn't he didn't perceive everything. And so he asked of the Lord. And because he trusted the witness of people who saw something, he didn't. Mm-hmm. And here's what the Lord mm-hmm. said. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, the, I wish I had your voice so I could read this with a godly voice. But anyway, <laughs> Moses, sa- Moses heard the Lord say, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou, Ooh. yeah, thou shalt surely give them. A possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. So, because of these women, Torah changed. Torah now allows Yo. women to inherit, and to this day, in Judaism, women women um, inherit in similar situations. Mm-hmm. Let's look at number. Ain't that nothing. Oh, what? I was just saying, ain't that nice? Oh, yeah. I've, so here's another example. This is in Numbers 9. This is the story of the Pesach Sheni, which means the second Passover. And here's another case where we get new Torah because someone asked a question and someone demanded equality and access. So here's the thing. On the second anniversary of the Passover, when the people were commanded to observe the Passover again, now the first time they actually did it, uh, to get out of egypt and now they're in the wilderness doing it for the second time mm-hmm. and it was clear that anyone not partaking of the passover would be effectively cut off from the people of israel because this was a unifying and a foundational ordinance it's uh, maybe what we would call a well not so much a saving ordinance but it's what makes you part of the people and uh, numbers 9 13 says the same soul shall be cut off from among his people uh, if he doesn't offer the sacrifice. However, some men were ritually unable to the offer the sacrifice because of contact with the dead body. So they asked Moses, lama nigara, which means why are we left out? This is the same verb that the, uh, the daughters of Zelophe had used as well. like Why should we be left out? Why are we kept mm-hmm. back from offering the sacrifice at the appointed time? so moses wasn't arrogant moses didn't say well we have we have everything we need moses asked the lord and the lord gave a revelation that allowed these men to make up the observance exactly one month later so they would not be left out i just love this example because they got new torah because they asked and everyone the entire uh children of israel got new scripture because these men asked and if they had not asked we would not have had this piece of torah Mm -mm -mm. and now here's another example of a prophet not seeing something that that others did this is first kings 19 so elijah after some devastation after some deaths uh military he thought so many people were wiped out that he was the only one left faithful to the Lord but there were 7,000 who knew something that Elijah didn't the Lord had to tell Elijah what those others already knew the Lord said I still have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not bowed their knees to Baal That's just one example. I've got more examples. You're going to get tired of these examples. John. No, bring them on. John chapter 10. Jesus said to his disciples, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So these other sheep knew something that the apostles didn't. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be uh, some group of people that that may or may not see things that because leaders these yeah maybe leaders have spiritual gifts but they don't have the same positionality they don't have the same access if they're not on the margins they're not going to see what's going on we talk about them uh, about being watchmen on the tower that's not the Uh only place you need to watch right you need to watch uh everywhere Anyway, so Mark Mm -hmm. chapter 9, here the disciples try to chastise someone for casting out someone they didn't know, for casting out demons. Someone they didn't know. Someone they didn't know. Was casting out demons. Yeah, someone that the disciples saw someone that they didn't know casting out demons in Jesus' name, but then Jesus chastised the chastisers he chastised them and he taught them that whoever is not against us is for us. So these other miracle workers that they didn't know about had wisdom and had access and had insight and had gifts that the disciples weren't aware of. Mm. And here's Acts chapter six, we've talked about this before and this is when you had a communitarian understanding of the gospel where you share your resources. But in this communal division of resources, the Greek speaking widows were being left out of the distribution. So there was a great complaining and grumbling among the Greek-speaking believers. And they had wisdom that the apostles didn't. They had knowledge that the apostles didn't. And so they said something. They, they, they started something. People say activism is not the way things are done. Well, I mean, they haven't read the scriptures. Like every one of these cases, <laughs> yep. someone brought something to the attention of someone who could do mm-hmm. something about it.
0: Mm-hmm. If you want to
1: call that activism, well, go ahead. I mean, but you just cannot condemn that this is the way God always operates. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. so these Greek-speaking believers had access to knowledge that the apostles didn't, and then when this information reached the twelve apostles, they did something about it. They didn't say, "Oh, we're all set and we know what's going on," and We've got it right, and they actually delegated these responsibilities, the distribution of resources, to seven of the Greek-speaking believers, and we know that because of their names. Yes. And this is in line with what Ayanna Presley has said, that the people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. Hashtag bars. Yes. Yes. Now, we're not done. We've got Acts chapter 10. So Corn- oh, snaps. Let's go. Cornelius the Gentile got a vision. And this was before Peter. He got the vision first. So Cornelius the Gentile got a vision saying that he was accepted by God, that his prayers were heard by God, and that he was fully included. And this is before Peter got his vision. And Peter had no idea that the inclusion of the Gentiles on their own terms was even possible. And I say on their own terms, meaning without circumcision, without uh, being committed to obeying all of the law of Moses. So Peter, the apostle with the most seniority, had to be told multiple times to get in line. And here Cornelius had information that Peter didn't. Cornelius had information mm-hmm. before Peter did. That needs to be mm-hmm. named. And then yes, sir. in Galatians 2, it's our friend Peter again. Uh, I love this story. In Let's Antioch, go. he separated himself from the Gentiles Mm -hmm. And then what did Paul do? What did Paul do? Paul opposed him to his face publicly before all of the community. Everybody. Yes. And Paul had wisdom and power that Peter didn't. And this is about accountability. Mm -hmm. This is about public accountability. Some people say, well, if church leaders doing something wrong, we should just send them a note. Well, that doesn't really do anything. I think we literally
0: just read about this in the Doctrine and Covenants.
1: Like we were literally just told Mm -hmm. how to deal with issues like this. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. So then there's Luke chapter 24, and here we've got some amazing women again. So this is Easter morning when Jesus had been raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who were with them at the time to see the angel, to see the empty tomb, they told these things to the apostles, and guess what happened? What happened? The apostles didn't believe them. It, mm-hmm. Lu- Luke clearly says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 24, the apostles didn't believe them thinking that their words were idle tales or were nonsense. And so here mm. you have these women who knew stuff that the apostles didn't. And in the John chapter 20 version of this, You've got Mary Magdalene even being commissioned to be the apostle to the apostles to send them a message Mm -hmm. on behalf of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And there's there's many other examples I could probably bring, but here you can see a pattern that we respect and love our prophets and our apostles, but we also respect them enough to have realistic expectations. We know that they're not going to be able mm-hmm. to do everything, to see everything, to get to everything. That's why we have one body with many members, that the gifts are distributed, that not only is there prophecy, but there's also the discernment of spirits. And we're able to see and discern and intuit and, and evaluate, really, what what's being taught and what's being said and what our policies are.
0: I mean I love everything you just said man like I love that we have all these uh, scriptures all these passages that we can defer to when trying to have this conversation about the role of people on the ground us that have different views us that are mm-hmm. in that us that are positioned differently that we can do more than just write a note to the first presidency when there are issues going on um I just love that there are multiple witness throughout the scriptures that confirm that the prophets aren't always in the best position to make the best decisions. And right. that is when we as members of the Lord's church have to step in. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I love that Galatians two scripture yeah. for that very reason. And simply because I think that particular example was just so gangster of Paul to just mm-hmm. straight up mm-hmm. call Peter out in front of everybody. And this is in line with, with what is written in Matthew 18 and in line Mm -hmm. with what we just Mm -hmm. read in uh, Mm -hmm. Doctrine and Covenants. What section was this? Long section, went down to like 90 verses, but like it's right in line with if somebody offends publicly, you got to rebuke them publicly, you know? Just there are so many witnesses throughout the scripture that validate the course of action that people like you and I would want to take in addressing some of our most urgent issues when it comes to people on the margins. And uh, I'm just glad that people can hear those. I'm glad that you know where those are. I'm glad that you know the scriptures so well that you have just all, I, I wasn't counting, but I probably should have been, but there was like at least 10 of these in here. Oh yeah. Uh, saying, you know, you even said it yourself, you can, name, you can name more if you wanted to. So anyway, you asked what my reaction to this was. I love all of this. I'm compiling this list right now because some of these examples I have never heard of, like the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad. Yeah, Zelophehad. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Zelophehad. Like I never knew this story, so I'm just gonna put that one in my uh, tool belt there Mm -hmm. and continue using it because this is just an amazing. All these are great stories, but like, um, you know, I'm just glad that. These witnesses exist and we can draw power from these and encouragement from these, Mm -hmm. resilience from these as we pursue our course of making sure that people are affirmed in their immutable identities or just generally speaking, that we can use these stories to say we may know something, we may have information that the leaders need if they are going to perform in their callings in the best possible way.
1: And that's what that infographic said. It says you've got to listen to the yes, single sir. people. You've got to listen to people yes, on the sir. margins, those that don't fit in. Like you're not going to get mm-hmm. it right if we don't listen to those people. And I just want to name right. and I'd be very clear about this, that I love this church. I love our leaders. If if I say something from the position that I have that they don't, that doesn't mean that they're bad people. And it doesn't mean that you don't sustain them. Right. Like Like all of our leaders are good people. Like I think that's mm-hmm. We need to decouple whether someone's good or not from whether they know the right thing to do in every circumstance. And this leads to another of people who try to defend the the leaders of the church in a way that's really kind of problematic because I think the church leaders, they would like everything that I was saying. It's people who, who want to get in front of them and be their shield and take on without being asked this extra burden. And a number of these people, they try, I'm gonna use weird language here. A number of these people try to give me a spanking for daring to believe that church leaders have the authority to receive revelation in response to an insight that I have. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of words there. But basically, I really believe that we can trust the leaders to get these things right, that they can receive revelation. Mm -hmm. And then these same people try to give me a spanking for not believing in the authority of church leaders. Like they can't have it (laughs) both ways. right? But anyway, and I think that's why it's important to really get to know something. Like if you take something I say out of context, you could probably distort it to make it sound bad. But if you see Mm -hmm. the way that I serve my community, the way that I teach, the way that I love, the way that I try to promote and defend the church you really know where where my heart is. Yes sir. And so um let me sh- move on to talk some more about the Talmud because I think people Talmud, liked it, yes. people liked it the, the last two uh, weeks. And here's the yes. th- something that's really important is we've got thousands of years of wisdom in other traditions that if we don't learn from we're depriving ourselves of of something. So, and this connects with insight, wisdom, and discernment of the individual. These are spiritual gifts that we see in uh, Indian C section 46. And I think one of these spiritual gifts is going to be called Svara. And that is an Aramaic word that means, literally it means reasoning, but it's this internal sense. It's your gut feeling of, uh, it's, it's an intuition or wisdom that's just really deep inside of you. That it... Comes out of really knowing the tradition well and comes out of really knowing people's experience as well. That's where you get savara. So I want right. to share a piece of Torah that I learned in person from Rabbi B'nai Lapi. This is one of the highlights of my life. I studied Ketubot 2b in the Talmud in the original Aramaic in person with Rabbi B'nai Lapi. And this is the same rabbi that does the crash theory. Mm hmm. But before I get to Svara in the text, the power of individual discernment, I need to share some background because many of our listeners will not be familiar with the way certain things work in uh, traditional Judaism. So we're gonna be talking about divorce and the Jewish law around divorce. So the first thing I need to do is Remind people of what it says in Deuteronomy 24 about divorce, that Moses permitted divorce and that when a divorce happens, the husband must give his wife a document, a a bill of divorce. In Aramaic, this is called a get. So I'm going to be using that word a lot, a get. And we see that this comes back up in the New Testament a few times where people ask jesus well moses said you know write your wife a bill of divorce and give it to her and and then there's divorce but anyway so that's the thing about giving the get is that it's actually a good thing for the woman if she's divorced to be given a document because what that allows her to do is remarry without fear of being accused of adultery because now yes. this get, she has proof that she's not married, that she can, she's free to marry anyone. And so this is a, now I'm not saying that the laws of the Torah are fully egalitarian and fully pro-women and fully everything, but at least here's a, a step of um, a trajectory of helping women have at least some rights. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about this because we've got a problem. Because the text says that the man must write a get and hand it to his wife, there's no such thing as divorce in absentia in, in Judaism. You can't like divorce people. Uh, it's not like a court can just rule people divorced and they're not there. You have to be physically mm-hmm. present. And not only that, but a, a court can't divorce you. It is the man who has to divorce the woman. No judge can divorce people. It is the man's act of giving the get to the woman that creates the divorce. So now we've got a couple of problems. Like what happens if a woman, um, if a, a wife's husband goes off to war or goes off on a long voyage and dies? We've got a big problem. Do you see what the big problem is? Yeah, it can't be present. Can't write the bill of divorcement. Right. Um, First of all, uh, you also can't legally declare people dead in absentia either. You can't just somehow legally declare someone dead just because you haven't seen them for seven years. You need two witnesses Mm -hmm. to the dead body. You don't have to bring the body, but you need to have two witnesses to say, I know that this person is dead before she can remarry. So what if you don't have proof that he's dead and you don't have Uh, him uh, available to give a divorce we've got a major Mm -hmm. major problem because if she remarries if she thinks her husband's dead and she remarries she's an adulteress if in fact her husband's alive and if she has kids with her new husband she's got a big problem and her kids have a big problem because the offspring of an adulterous relationship they're called mamzerim which is Could be translated illegitimate children but it's it's not just sex outside of marriage it has to be the offspring of a prohibited relationship and this being a mom's there gives you many many restrictions in participating in the life of the community it's there's a lot of stuff that you can't do it's it's a very bad status that you don't want to have so Mm. we've got a problem if A man goes off and, well, maybe he runs off. Maybe he's alive and just runs off with another woman. Like, we don't know. But the problem is, if he's not around, divorce is impossible and uh, ruling him dead is impossible. So, Hmm. they came up, the rabbis came up with this concept called a conditional get. And a man would write a get before he departs on a journey. I. And he would write it in such a way that says, if I am not back by 30 days, or if I'm not back by 12 months, then we're divorced. And then he can give this conditional get to the wife, and if he goes off and he's unfortunately dies and never comes back, she now has a valid get in her hand, and she's free to remarry. So that solves that problem. Uh, without that, she would be what's called a chained woman, an aguna in Hebrew, someone who's... Uh, who's sort of bound to someone who's not, not around. Now we've got another layer of the problem. I need to talk about this word, onus. Onus okay. means uh, circumstances beyond your control, unavoidable circumstances where you are forced to do something or prevented from doing something that you wanted to do, and it's outside of your control. There is a major uh, principle in the Torah that you are not at fault if you're not if you can't do something if you are beyond your control forced to do something or prevented from doing something it just doesn't count okay now here's where this runs into our values around uh, the woman because what happens if a man goes off gives his wife a conditional get and then through no fault of his own, he's delayed from getting back before the deadline. Now what do we do? So if you take the, the Torah principle seriously, you you would have to say, well, the get is invalid because he was prevented. That's the principle. Um, onus gives you a uh, an out from this get. And so if the man comes back on day 32, and he and the get was written with the condition of thirty days. Well, what do we do? What do you think we do, James? i I'm putting James on the spot. so uh. <laughs>
0: I'm leaning towards more honoring the principle of the get rather than the
1: law of it. so here's here's what happens, though. If you allow onus to get you out of the condition of the get and and thus invalidate uh-huh. the get, we've got we've got a couple of problems what happens if Mm -hmm. on day 30 we've got a um he doesn't show show up and now she's got what she thinks is a valid get in her hand but it's only valid um if if he doesn't have an excuse right we don't know if he has a good excuse or not so we're, we've got this big ambiguity in the status of the get, which means she might think, "Oh no, he's going to come back. He's going to come back for me. He loves me. He's going to come back." Well, what if he's dead? And so she will sit there not knowing if the if the get is valid or not, and she will make herself an aguna. She will never remarry, and she will um, feel like she has to. Uh, wait for her for her husband who may never come back and uh she could have had a valid get in her hand except for the fact now we're going to um invalidate the get based on this principle of onus so here onus actually does something bad now there's another problem what happens if we've got a woman who has a valid get in her what we think is a valid get in her hand The conditions have been met and she's now free to remarry and then she remarries but then husband comes back and husband has a good excuse which means the get is invalid which Hmm. means they were never divorced which means they're still married so we've got a big problem because now she's an adulteress who's married to a living husband and now married to a second husband and her kids with the second husband now are mom's arim. That's what will happen if we allow the principle of onus to retroactively undo a get that we thought was valid. Mm. So we've got a big problem if we allow onus to uh, invalidate a get. Big problem. However, that's what the Torah says. The Torah says onus gets you out of these situations. Um, mm. and, the, and the principle, I'm not gonna go into the legal business about this, but the principle of onus is derived from Deuteronomy 22 uh, verse 26. But here's what Rava said. Rava is a brilliant rabbi. He came up so he, so they tried some legal arguments. They tried working a way their way around this, but the principle of onus is so inherent in the law that there's no good legal way around it. So here's what Rava did. He just declared, he said, "Ain onus begitten." Uh, getten is the plural of get. By the way, ain means there is not. Onus means well. We've talked about that. These unavoidable circumstances. By is the preposition with, and getten means gets. And he says there is no such concept of onus with respect to gets. Ain onus begitten. I would love to have that as a as a as a phrase because it is so brilliant. And you know what his authority was for saying that? What was it? his own internal svarah. <laughs> oh, he realized that if you follow the Torah on this issue, it will put women and their kids in very, very awful situations. And there was no sort of legal way around it that was convincing. So he said, you know what? I'm just gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. And he said, ain't onus bekit. And he said, just on his own authority, his own internal, what his gut told him needed to be the case, he trumped even the written Torah based on his own, what we would maybe call testimony, his own internal mm-hmm. testimony of what needed to happen. And that is called Svara, and I, I just find it so beautiful. And the Talmud goes on to say, it asks Rava, it says, are you going to overturn Torah for the sake of this these women? And guess what Rava said? What Rava said? He said one word in Aramaic, Ain, meaning yes. Hmm. Are you going to overturn Torah for the sake of these women? He just said, yes. That's courage. That is Svara. And I think we have the ability to do the same. We all have these spiritual gifts this And this is what, this, you can see where it very much connects with the queer experience, right? This whole thing is queer in terms of Rabbi B'nai Lapi saying, look, you've got, sometimes you're going to have to turn to your own internal gifts to, to, to speak the truth, to, to speak what needs to, to get done. And I just, oh, I love this story. So I want to know what your reactions are. Oh, gosh. There's, like, way too much. I I dumped a whole bunch, but... No, it's all good. Um, I'm still hung up on the last thing
0: you said about, uh, you know, trusting his own Svara when it came to this whole thing. Um, Like, I was trying to imagine what if somebody just did that within our own faith tradition, what the consequences, what the, for lack of a better word, fallout might be if someone simply... Deferred to their own testimony, like a bishop, or you know, even a member of the first presidency or an apostle, deferring to their own testimony to overturn what is written in our scriptural canon. Like such a thing sounds revolutionary. It sounds almost heretical, um, but also it wouldn't be. The only time in our history that such a thing has mm-hmm. happened, and uh, that is something that needs to be considered. Um, I mean, this is something that you can kind of argue that Jesus did. You can yeah. argue that other people have mm-hmm, done it, mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. but even but when you said that, you know, I'm not gonna lie, my spirit churned a little bit. I'm just like that is that sounds kind of heretical, but at the same time, I'm just like that was still the right move, though. That is something I'd like to Mm -hmm. believe that I would do, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, I'm pretty, like, I'm not all that radical in terms of my belief in, you know, our faith. I'm pretty, I go as by the book as I can when it comes to things. I just, you know, I defer to the scriptures first Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, my own revelations based on what I read in the scriptures. And then I look to uh, the brethren to see if, you know, any of that can be confirmed by them. But even still, when I hear, when, when I heard you say that, I was just like, yo, that, that stirs me a little bit and not in all the yeah. best ways, but, uh, that's something I got to wrestle with. And that's something I need to consider. I, I was just reminded, this is something that is sti- that still exists in my body and that could potentially, um, you know, get in the way mm-hmm. of my most authentic expressions of worship. So, uh. I felt a little convicted by the story, I'm not going to lie, but um yeah. it was a necessary one and it's uh, something that I should probably
1: consider. Well, l- let me tell you the the rest of the story. <laughs> Oops, there's more. <laughs> oh geez. okay, let's go. So, in the Talmud, you've got a whole bunch of rabbis who share their opinions on stuff, right? And and not okay. every opinion in in the Talmud prevails. Uh, that's, that's what I love is because they preserved the minority opinions. They, they kept a record of the other side and, and even those who lost the argument. And, but in this case, the halakha, the Jewish law, now follows Rava. He, pre, he persuaded, he, he prevailed, and now mm-hmm. that's the standard. So what he, what, he uh, what might have sounded radical, now is normal and that's what it's like to to flow with the spirit. Like if we say something now it's going to sound radical, but in two or three generations that's going to be the norm. It's going to be, yeah, of course. That's totally obvious. And I think mm-hmm. the same thing mm-hmm. is true for the inclusion of queer people. It's actually not that radical. Right. And like like 30 years from now people are going to like, why did we even make a big deal out about that? Like of course it is. And so it's going to sound a little radical now, And it might sound a little inauthentic. It might sound a little heretical, but that will be the gospel of everyone in the church thirty years from now, or forty years, or whatever it is. Right? That's I think one of the big morals of this story is, yeah, it's gonna. And this is sort of option three thinking, right? He's he had to change the tradition. He had to. Mm -hmm. Um, tweak it he had to adjust in light of of the tradition crashing because it couldn't accommodate this particular justice issue and he said nope we're Uh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna change it and that's actually where you get your svara it's not from you you don't just randomly make stuff up it comes from being deeply steeped in the principles values and texts of the tradition that's the authenticity of Svara. like if he mm-hmm. just randomly came out of nowhere and said that i think that's where i try to come at it i'm not just saying this cuz i'm queer and i want a you know an easy life like i'm saying this because right. i am i try to be deeply steeped in the texts the values and the principles of my tradition and authentically mm-hmm. flowing from those i can't help but speak out for the inclusion of my people. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I'm not, I didn't join this church to, to it, like, well, how am I going to say this? Yeah. If I wanted to church, if I needed to be in a church that's pro gay immediately, I would have stayed in the Episcopal church. Like I'm not doing this just because I um, am selfishly wanting something in my own interest. If If I wanted to do that, I wouldn't be in the church. I would have, taken the easy way around but i am deeply committed to this tradition so much that i'm going to see where the spirit is leading us and see where this tradition logically unfolds and see the trajectory of this tradition i think that's really uh the best in judaism and the best in christianity is tapping into like what's good what needs to be done and that's where we get back to love if the law without love doesn't help anyone like first corinthians 13 if you have all these things knowledge mystery power miracles but you don't have love well you just missed the whole point yes sir so that's all i have to say about uh section 46
0: all righty then thank you yes talmud i'm so glad you brought back some more talmud for us thank you so much Derek. that was beautiful and uh gave me a lot to think about uh Like I am probably going to, uh, you know, have to do some journaling once we're done recording here, but, uh, I really do appreciate what you brought today. Um, let's go ahead and move on to 47. I'll try to keep my thoughts uh, brief on this here. Uh, this section, what's happening in here is the saints were commanded to keep records. And, uh, Oliver was the guy doing that until he got called on a mission Then when John Whitmer got back from his mission, a lot fell on him to take on the role of scribe and historian, but he didn't want to do it. The voice of the elders wanted him to do it, and Joseph asked him to do it, but for whatever reason, didn't feel like he could unless the Lord asked him to. Now, later communications indicate that John seemed to be insecure about his ability to be historian, and time would show that he probably wasn't as good of a historian as Oliver was. But uh, anyway, section 47 is what we got in response. Uh, John Whitmer was like, I'll, I'll do it if the Lord says that I got to do it. And that's what 47 was, revolution, revelation through the prophet, telling John Whitmer to be the historian and scribe for uh, Joseph's revelations. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but it's pretty interesting that John didn't receive Joseph's personal request, but he did receive the Lord's request through Joseph, which indicates that even those who were closest to Joseph knew that there was a difference between Joseph the man and Joseph the prophet, but we don't really got time to uh, address that today. I more just want to address this whole idea of keeping a history. And I think I've uh, spoken about this before, but I do have some new things that I want to say just in light of what's going on uh, in our world. Both the Bible and uh, the Book of Mormon, they make a pretty big deal of understanding our history of having a history and understanding that history like in the book of chronicles we read of the children of issachar who had understanding of the times to know what israel ought to do Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then in alma we read uh, that the records enlarge the memory of their people and this is the kicker here and convinced many of the error of their ways. Every section of the Doctrine and Covenants has included with it a historical introduction pretty much for the purpose of being able to, con- to contextualize the preceding revelation so we know how to read it. The implication of those two verses that I just made reference to in the organization of the Doctrine and Covenants is that understanding our history Helps us understand and act appropriately in our present. Therefore, it stands to reason that if we want to understand things that are happening today, like homophobia and the racial tension and misogyny that exists today, and properly address it, we got to understand the history of those things, the history of that tension, uh, the history of that marginalization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, this past week, I was considering for I was considering just as an example. The uh, murder of George Floyd. He's not the first, nor is he the most recent high-profile killing in that 12-mile radius of Minneapolis. Now, that information alone helps us contextualize the response to his death. But there's more to consider on a local level, like uh, the neighborhood that George was in, the racial makeup of that neighborhood, and uh, the police force assigned to it whether or not the area was segregated, stuff like that. And there's things to consider on a macro level, like the origins of policing, being tied to slave patrols. Uh, History is context. And uh, I believe a big reason that we keep a history is so that these revelations and these scriptures can be understood in their proper context. For with that... We are in a better position to act appropriately on the doctrine. One more beautiful truth that was found in that Alma scripture is the, uh, the transformative nature of learning our history.
1: Mm-hmm. We learned
0: it not just to learn more about the past, but to know more about ourselves. History tells us who and where we come from. It tells us how the people and events before us have shaped who we are now and what kind of actions we need to take in order to, to pursue a better future. In the case of our Mm -hmm. racial history, if we want to have a more racially just future, we got to understand, communally speaking, where we come from as a nation. We got to understand, personally speaking, where we come from, uh, especially where our racial identities are concerned. Because without a sense of history, without a sense of context, we lose our sense of self and we risk seeking it in more volatile places that validate the more... Uh, errant parts of our character i just wanted to name the importance of you know having a history and learning that history because this really puts uh, our present struggles Mm -hmm. in in context it puts our struggles as a church in context it puts our struggles as a as a people in this nation in america in context both it puts them in a context racially it puts our uh LGBTQ struggles in in context it puts it puts our issues of misogyny in context like this is why I tell people to learn history when they want to have conversations about race because really that helps us understand and have these conversations about them significantly better um, that's that's what stood out to me as I considered why it was so important to have a historian why it was so so important to have a history. That's what I got from Section 47. You, you got any thoughts on this immediately?
1: Yeah, history is important because people, here's what I don't want to have happen is kind of like what we do when I trip down the sidewalk and then I turn it into a little jog like it was something I meant to do and just erase the fact that I stumbled. I think we have a history of doing that in the church where we like oh we've got it right now uh-huh. so so just like let's start right now right um but the problem with that is you've just erased the sacrifice of so many people beforehand who struggled to try to fix it you also erase the pain of so many people who endured it and just pretended like that that never happened and we shouldn't do that i don't want to um mm-hmm. What is the, I can't think of how I'm trying to say this. Like when we focus on the bad things in our history, we're not doing it to tear down the church. We're doing it to have a realistic sense of how we got where we are now. What lessons can we learn from that? How can we make sure we never do it again? If we don't tell our history right, we're gonna keep making the same mistakes. And I think that history is the best honor way of honoring things. And history is also the best way of changing things too. You know, just like, Mm-hmm. If all of these records, this, these like 10 or so instances of church leaders or or um, relate leaders among the people of Israel, if those weren't preserved in our history, I wouldn't know about them. The only way I know is mm-hmm. because someone recorded places where the church leaders... Um, the leaders of God's people didn't know everything or didn't understand everything or didn't see everything or didn't, didn't get everything right away. And someone else did like our history can help change because the people who tell the history also get to write the future. And we get to, that's, that's what we're going to do is we uh, make sure we need to get our history correct so that we can actually pave the way for a better future and i think yes, people sir. say well where in the scriptures does it fully justify queer people where where do you find that in the and i've obviously there's going to be <laughs> i'm going to have many places where queer people are are included justified uh, acknowledged validated but people want it more explicit and i say well to them well look It's the journals that we write today. It's the history that we write today that will be Mm -hmm. the scripture of tomorrow. This is sort of back with Rava. Like, yeah, it sounds a little bit edgy now, but it's going to be the standard. It's going to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we're history keeping people.
0: As do I. As do I. Very important. All right, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Before we do, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the past 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue lecture series by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That is
1: DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com, and you can also find us at Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. And you know, send us reactions to the to the um, infographic. Let's post that and get some get some conversations on that. And I think there's ways of extending the infographic. I didn't see anything on the inclusion of of folks with disabilities. That is a major barrier right. towards the inclusion of, mm-hmm. of folks, and especially our neurodivergent mm-hmm. friends, our autistic friends. That is a major barrier for um, mm-hmm. relationships in the church with. Uh, being fitting in, that's there's a lot of misunderstandings around our autistic friends, and we should definitely mm-hmm. make room and center the needs and uh, of of our friends with disabilities and make sure that they get the support and access that we all by we should all have as our birthright as children of God. Yes, sir, absolutely. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll think about
0: uh, more ways we can engage y'all. We're trying to figure out exactly how this technology works for things like Zoom or Facebook Lives, Instagram Lives. It'd be cool to interact with y'all more often and just figure out exactly what we're going to do with those things. But when we do, we will definitely let you guys know. Uh, also, special thanks to uh, some special collaborators of ours, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, Tamara Kemsley to uh, editing our uh the audio for our episodes. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Till we meet again next week. Later, everyone. Bye.